Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 17. And this week on Shut Up and Wrestle for episode 17, we actually have somebody here who is. uh, connected to this show in a unique kind of way, especially if you enjoy the opening theme song of the podcast. That's because he was the co-producer of I Like to Hurt People, the classic Detroit wrestling mockumentary that was made in the 70s and completed and released in the 1980s. Um, I've been saving this one for quite a while now. Now that my book is out there, um, I wanted to uh, release this conversation for this week's episode. So, of course, the book I'm talking about, as you all should know by now, is my biography of the original Sheik, entitled Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, for which I did interview uh, Brian Greenberg when I was originally writing it. So this conversation is kind of like a continuation of that one. So I hope you guys enjoy it. We'll get to it in a second. Wanted to mention a few things about the book first. One being that, uh, let's see, as I am recording this, it is uh, the weekend of May 21st. Uh, This will be coming out on the, uh, let's see, two, three, the 25th. So we're just a few days away. Wanted to let everyone know that the audio book, that's right, the audio book, of Shut Up and Wrestle will be coming out at the end of May from a company called Tantor Media, which works uh, along with ECW Press to make audiobooks of some of their publications. They chose Blood and Fire to be one, and I had the privilege to be able to record it myself. So if you would like to hear me reading Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, you will have that opportunity when the audiobook version comes out at the end of the month. So keep an eye out for that. I will be updating you on it when it becomes available and how you can purchase it slash download it at that time. Um, As for the print copies of the book, they are now uh, fully available online everywhere in print and digital copies. I want to mention, though, that I do have... um, my own signed copies that I am selling. Uh, I, I still have some of those uh, sitting in my garage. So if anybody would like to have a signed copy of Blood and Fire, of course, as I've mentioned before, you can reach out to me. Reach out to me at my email address, Solomon at yahoo.com. Um, you can also get me on my Twitter if you want to direct message me there. I am Brian R. Solomon. I want to just let you know for the moment, though, do not attempt to contact me on Instagram uh, because, of course, my Instagram account has been hacked. For anybody that follows me on there, I think if you were wondering why I suddenly have become so passionate about Bitcoin and get rich, get rich quick schemes, that's because it ain't me. That's right. Somebody hacked into my Instagram account. I'm in the process of trying to recover that account. So in the meantime, do not reach out to my Instagram account if you're trying to buy copies of the book. Uh, stick with Twitter or stick with my email address. That would be fine. Uh, one more thing before we get to the interview with Brian, uh, a couple of uh, details about the the recent subscription issues with Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I am a, a regular monthly contributor to that magazine. And if anybody has been having trouble getting their issues, especially if you're a subscriber, uh, they they had switched over to a new uh, subscription delivery service and it got a little messy there for a while. 
And so the May and June issues of PWI were delayed. You could still buy them in stores, but if you were a subscriber, they were delayed and they finally both gone out in the mail. So subscribers should be getting them. I'm talking about the May issue, which has Kazuchika Okada on the cover. And I have columns in that issue on uh, early 90s WCW and on the phenomenon of managers in pro wrestling. So if that's the kind of stuff you like to read about, that's the May issue. In the June issue with Becky Lynch on the cover, I have, of course, my column that I had mentioned about Cody Rhodes and my Way It Was column about, of course, the original Sheik, Ed Farhat. If you want to pick up those issues or any other issues of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, go to getpwi.com. Okay, now that we've gotten all that wonderful stuff out of the way, let's get to this conversation with Brian Greenberg. Detroit Wrestling, I Like to Hurt People, The Sheik, we talk about it all, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so right now it's my pleasure to welcome somebody to the podcast that has an important connection to this show, as I've mentioned before, because um, he was the one that gave me permission to use the theme music for this show that everybody likes so much, which is the song I Like to Hurt People. And it is from, of course, the the film I Like to Hurt People, which we'll be talking about. And uh, he was a co-producer on that original film with Donald Jackson in the 70s. And uh, he's worked extensively in film and music videos. He's worked with Prince. He worked on Titanic, many other films. But his connection right now, of course, to what we're going to talk about in the world of wrestling and old school wrestling is with that film, I Like to Hurt People, and his experiences in the world of Detroit wrestling. And right now he's also working on or actually making available the soundtrack, believe it or not, and I've heard it. To I Like to Hurt People. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the, the sequel that's in the works. And, of course, I'm talking about Mr. Brian Greenberg. Hi, Brian. Hi. Hey, thank you for uh, inviting me in. Appreciate My pleasure. My pleasure. And, of course, you know, for people that have bought um, uh, the Sheik the biography, Blood and Fire, or, you know, or, or are looking to buy it, um, your, you know, your mention in that book, and we, we talked a couple of years ago for the first time, when I was writing that book and I was looking for some background, especially on that film. And it was just so interesting to get your perspective on being a part of that world, because I mean, you grew up in, in the Detroit area, right? So you were aware of big time wrestling as a kid. I was watching it ever since, uh, you know, we had a TV. So, you know, yeah, I was a big fan early in the early days of leaping Larry Shane and, you know, Crybaby Ed can and all the, all the classics. So yeah, I was weaned on wrestling. So how, so, and I know, you know, we've talked, we talked about some of this when we were, uh, when I was working on the book, but even for just for the listeners, then how did that come to pass that that had to be almost like a dream project then for you and, and Don was Don also a wrestling fan as well? Actually he was, and it really was uh, kind of a magic moment. We were, uh, Don had just, finished directing his first independent movie, a movie called Demon Lover. You can see clips of it on YouTube. It's, uh, well, I'll let you make your own, own opinion on it. But it, anyways, it was a great little film that we did. And it was a uh, it was an independent movie that was, you know, we went out, raised the money, uh, and was able to uh, get it distributed. I uh, came in to help them. I wasn't, uh, I didn't produce that film, but after it was over, uh, you know, we were all filmmakers in Detroit and we wanted to do another project. Independent filmmaking was, uh, was actual, uh, something that you could, you could do in Michigan. I got my start working as an, in, in an independent film called Northfield Tem- Cemetery Massacre. Uh, that is also a little bit legendary in Detroit where we use the scorpions as a white club in the movie. But anyways, I had enough experience with independent films that I felt like I was ready to do my first movie. Don and I were, talking about a couple of different ideas. We wanted to do a horror film and, uh, and we're looking at our connections and what could work, what would, what couldn't work. And then Bob, I mean, Don knew Bob Finnegan. I forgot how that relationship came about, but we started thinking about a wrestling horror film. And the more we thought about it, the more it started, started making sense, started to gel. We like the idea. We thought, you know what, we could, we could do this. So we approached Bob Finnegan up at uh, in Williamston, uh, made a trip up to Lansing, 
met with him and Williamson and uh, his little entourage. And the more we talk about it, we can see that he was sharing the same vision that we had about a wrestling movie that could be a horror film. And the next thing you know, we were invited to the Sheik's annual New Year's party. Which, Amazing. Who knew? You know, so here we, which was kind of surreal. So here we are at, in the Sheik's mansion, which, you know, is uh, it's now a bed and breakfast, but it's the size of a small hotel uh, up right. in Lansing. He's there with people from, from government and wrestlers. So it was quite a unique experience. And we had a chance to hang out with them more, get to know the Sheik, uh, talk about what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And uh, that really laid the groundwork for what was going to be the movie. And uh, once we had their blessing, we knew we could go out and start raising money. Uh, not like there were people waiting in the wings. I mean, it took a lot. And any, anybody that raises money knows what it's like. I mean, you have a lot. We had a lot of meetings. Uh, and we slowly found, you know, doctors, sons, and people that shared our vision and would give us a thousand here and a thousand there. And we finally got enough to say, yeah, we could start this. We could make this movie. And we did. And uh, that's what led us to really, uh, that's what led us to start the movie. As we got into the movie, the horror, the idea of doing a horror film became more challenging because we realized the wrestlers changed their appearance all the time. Mm -hmm. And that continuity was never gonna hold up. And then we're suddenly like, you know, we're gonna have to change directions here, but we got enough footage. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's something more than just a horror film here. So as we compiled footage and put things together, and you know, this is a story I really haven't told uh, too many people, but we actually went out to Los Angeles. We were locking, we were finishing the distribution deal on Demon Lover. And while we were out there, we, we, we had some meetings with some producers to show our film. Again, trying to raise money, trying to find distribution, trying to keep it moving. And we showed it to uh, the producers that did Flash Gordon. Uh, wow. They're actually pretty well known and became pretty uh, famous. Anyways, they looked at our footage and they were, they, there was interest, but they actually convinced us to move it into more of a documentary. And we came back, started looking at the footage, said, you know, we, I think we could do that. And that's basically what we did. That's how it metamorphosized what it was. And originally, once we had cut the film, we finished the film up in 1979. And right then I had an, I was given an opportunity to move out to uh, uh, Carmel to work with Michael Nesmith on a project called Pop, Pop Clips, which I ended up uh, co-producing, directing. And it really led to the beginnings of MTV. At one time they were gonna call it uh, Pop Clips. Michael told them they would have to license that and they changed it to MTV and the rest became history. And that's how I started doing music videos and one thing led to another. And next thing you know, I, that, was my, that was a strong career. Uh, while that was going on, Don had also moved out to Hollywood. He was establishing himself and he actually did a little independent film that he was able to sell to New World. And at the time, New World was starting a, a laser division. And Don was at the right place at the right time. He convinced them to put in money to finish the film and to put it out as a laser disc. And that's basically how it became finished. And they went back and they, you know, Don sold them on the idea. I don't know how they did it. I mean, I don't know what, what was the process, but him and Finnegan convinced New World to put in money to come back, shoot a whole other thing about Stop the Sheik so they could intercut that into the movie and have more of a plot, you know, the Stop the Sheik movement and felt that that would fit well with what they had to work with. So to be honest with you, that was a surprise to me. I didn't hear, once I moved out, I didn't really hear much about the film. I talked to Don, but Don didn't, we really didn't, you know, that was on, always on the back burner. And I didn't hear anything about it till he cut the deal with New World and let me know that they sold the movie and, and a few other, you know, issues that were going on with the film. And the next thing I know, I, it was released and I saw it for the first time. And when I'm looking at it, I realized like, wait, this is not the movie that we put together. <laughs> it's a whole different movie. And at that point I was like, that's fine. You know, it's, I was so glad that it came out and that people were actually seeing it and that, you know, it had, it had a life of its own. And then years later, you know, after the movie was out, I would get calls from people that wanted to know more about the movie, would want to know if they could show a version of it at a, at a convention. And uh, as the years went on, I started asking like, hey, why, why is this film still popular? 
Why do people still want to see this? And I realized we had the only footage of these famous wrestlers wrestling in big time arenas, being in actual matches that were on film, that this didn't really exist any, anywhere else. Right. And we had great stuff with Andre and, you know, some of the other famous wrestlers of the day that really didn't exist in any other format. So, so that was great. That really motivated, motivated me to put it out as a DVD and like, you know, you can find it on eBay and I just been, you know, working on, uh, well, what happened was actually, I started thinking more about doing a making of because when we were doing the film, one of the things that Don and I would do was we both carried super eight cameras around with us because we're nutty fanatical filmmakers and we wanted to document everything we were doing and when i started looking at that footage i realized wow there's enough stuff here to really show how we made this movie some nice little antics and there's actually a lot of sound bites that work really well uh i had a, a super eight sound camera so we managed to capture some really fun moments i wish i had more i wish i knew where the outtakes were but i mean i've been managing the clues something together that's actually very watchable fun to watch uh, you know, I have a new footage of Andre the Giant. I uh, go into a little more depth about the bruiser uh, in our movie and some of the things that had happened. And uh, there's a little clip from a sequence that's in the mo- that was shot for the movie that never made it in uh, because you don't want to take the wrestlers to a topless bar and get them drunk. <laughs> no, no, uh, that, not not a good idea. <laughs> not a good idea. No. Uh, I mean, you know, it would sounded good on paper, but when we <laughs> listen back to the recordings, uh, I don't think we wanted to put that out there, but I'm going to have a little bit of that in the movie. I did find a little clip, uh, but that was about the only thing we didn't put in the movie. Most everything else found its way in. Yeah. And, and I mean, there, so much time has passed. Uh, they're all, they're all gone now. I mean, I don't think, are there any wrestlers that were featured in the film? I mean, possibly Heather Feather. I don't quite know whatever no, happened she- to her. Did no, she, she pass? passed? Yeah, she, she passed a while ago, unfortunately. That's and you're bad. absolutely right. I was brokenhearted to find out Finnegan passed about two years ago. Yeah, was it that recently? Yes. Oh, boy. Yeah, you know, because the interesting thing about him, because you mentioned him, and, and too, I want to make clear for people that uh, are, you know, not as well-versed in the history of Detroit wrestling, before I mentioned Finnegan, that, you know, this movie, I like to hurt people. I've talked about it on here before. It really is, like you said, it's this time capsule that stands alone. There's nothing like it where it's a document of of Detroit territorial wrestling in the 1970s. And you can see these matches and on high quality footage and backstage interviews. And I mean, you captured that incredible promo that Dusty Rhodes gives to Lord Athol Layton. I mean, that is like Hall of Fame level promo. And you've got it preserved for all time. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's in this movie. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. As as you know, as campy as the movie gets, for from for an old school wrestling fan, it's like a it's like a diamond. Thanks. Yeah, we were really fortunate. You know, right place, right time. And I think one of the things that really, really helped is that the Sheik took a liking to us. He really liked us. Uh, he let us hang around. And we knew to respect them and not to, you know, we don't want to pull the curtain back too far. We knew where our, we knew where our boundaries were going to be and we knew where the limitations were, but we would still, would still press on. And as the more we worked on the film, the more they got used to us being around and the more they were comfortable about letting their hair down and just being themselves. And boy, when it came to, we really didn't have to say much, you know, they, they had been done. They had worked, they worked on the routine so long. I mean, they had it down. You know, we just give them a couple of buzzwords to say and just let them have it, let them go at it. And they, yeah. they would fill in the rest. So, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, the, especially back then, they were such natural performers. They were so used to having to kind of go with the flow and make things up as they went along and things and just kind of hit bullet points. But, but to know where they were going, it's almost like, you know, they're, they're, it's a perfect cast for a movie like this. But, you know, I wanted to mention, like I said before, Finnegan, the thing that I learned about him, and I mean, you work directly with him, but even just in my research, because he was kind of the the, the Sheik's production man, he was kind of his, the, the director of his TV show and all this kind of thing. He always seemed to be on the lookout for ways that he could 
get more exposure for big time wrestling and get it into different avenues and expand and do different things with it, like the music recording. And, you know, I think he had tried to actually get them on Showtime cable when Showtime was starting in the same way that HBO used to carry Madison Square Garden wrestling and things like that. So, I mean, that that may have helped. I, I mean, I would imagine that he was somebody that was looking for projects that would expand big time wrestling in some way. Oh, he became our produ- he became our uh, co-producer. He became a partner with us. You know, he, it's exactly like you said. I mean, he was into it. He helped us raise money. Uh, we had a lot of good times with Bob. He was really, really uh, uh, instrumental in making every in making a lot of things happen. You know, I want to go back to a point about who's still around. There is one wrestler. There is not a wrestler, but New York Raymond. Right. Is yes. Still around. Uh, I think he's living in Florida. So, boy, I would love to contact him. I would love. We have a lot of film with him in the movie, and I'm still not sure what his relationship was with the Sheik. But yeah, he was he, always there. You know, he was the <laughs> nicest guy in the world. Right. Be, um, it seems uh, like every every wrestling territory and promotion back then had a guy like that who who hung around the front office. He did various odd jobs. You wasn't. You never quite sure what his job was. I mean, like in New yeah. York. With the WWF, they used to have Professor Elliot, and for people that were, you know, fans of, of, of WWF back in the day. I mean, every territory had that guy, and, and New York Raymond was the guy. It's in Detroit. It's ironic that he's, you know, maybe the only one. He's not the only one left because I mean, there are some people left from the heyday of big time wrestling, like Flying Fred Curry, for example. But, but not featured in I Like to Hurt People. He's yeah. he's the only one. Yeah. And I can think of, I mean, even because even Eddie Jr. unfortunately passed yeah. a year ago. Yeah, that's really sad. I wish they were around uh, to share in some of uh, in some of this, especially with and then Don. We lost Don a long time ago. Don Jackson, who was uh, you know a, a force to be reckoned with, and he was just you know it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, he had passed quite a few years ago. Uh, matter of fact, that's what led to everything. After he passed. His wife said, you know, hey, here's all the material. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you know, and to this day, I'm still going through boxes of Don's material. Every once in a while, I'll find some some little gem. And that's how I, you know, again, how I came across the cassette. And didn't you say that um, at the New Year's party, which I have to ask more about because that's just incredible. The New Year's party at the Sheik's mansion. Didn't you mention at one point that you guys had recorded audio uh, from that night? Well, but you don't, but you, you don't have it or something like that, right? Yes. Uh, a matter of fact, I want to see if I had the tape in front of me. I, yes, you do have it. Tape, and I do have it, and I listened to it, and it was worthless. <laughs> oh God! I, you, <laughs> you know, know what? There was a yeah. lot of conversation. There wasn't. A, yeah. I was hoping I could glean something from it. It just wasn't <laughs> enough there. You know, it was kind of fun to watch and listen to though, because we did a little mock rehearsal with Finnegan about yeah you know, how we would set up a scene and we were. T- doing a little banter about how we were going to make the movie but other than that there really wasn't what is wasn't as much in there as i as i had hoped for you know i have pretty vague memories of that it was but it was you know it was just it was a little surreal you know it was first we had been over to the i think that might have been the first time we were at us at at the sheik's mansion but after that we had spent uh, a lot of time there and, you know, typical Midwest would always end up in the kitchen at the end of the day, you know, eating hot dogs and just talking about stuff. And, you know, it was just, it, there, it was, a, a, Sheik's house was going, you know, it was like a lot of family members there. And it was like being with family. So they were very nice people. They were very uh, open to letting us do what we'd want. And uh, I remember one time showing up uh, one afternoon and I look over, Don and I look over and we see the Sheik on a, uh, bulldozer what's he doing out in the acreage you know because he's a lot of land he's in this bulldozer the next thing we and we walk out towards him next thing you know he's chasing us in it <laughs> like he's gonna run us over so you know that's always pretty memorable but that's what you'd expect from the sheet get a it's always you know sense of humor right you know, just kind of a funny guy but uh but a serious businessman him and joyce really had it down and it's it's interesting how you know of of course obviously because you guys were both from the area, when you're thinking of making a movie like this, it's easy to work with the wrestling obviously that's in the area. But it's it's ironic to me that of all the promoters of those days and all the wrestlers, it would be the guy who was the most 
protective and guarded and uh, inscrutable, you know, to find out who he was and everything as a real person, that he would be the guy that would let you guys do that kind of thing. I mean, even though, like you said, you never pressed it too much and you never were like trying to expose anything, but it's still, I think, such a big deal that that he said, yeah, sure, you guys could do this. That'd be great. You know what I mean? That's a big deal. Yeah, and I think I have a, I, I have to believe that Finnegan had a lot to do with it. That you know, that and the fact that when we met, we spent time with the Sheik, and I think he trusted us in general, and he liked us. He liked us hanging around. He, you know, we we never, like I said, we never really, uh, uh, we listened to them. We didn't we didn't come in there telling them what we were going to do, do so much as listening to what was available for us to use in our film. Right. So you know, we loved going to Channel sixty two. That was a great place to do interviews and the, to uh, hang out before the match and uh, kind of schmooze with the wrestlers before we would shoot the, the big match uh, of the night. And we, are, you know, everybody always treated us well. And, uh, you know, in between the matches, you know, business, business, backstage, there's business going on. There's things happening. And you know, I remember, right, as a matter of fact, something I had, this is something I had mentioned in some other interviews, but not like this. Before we shot that interview with, with Creechman, and Abdullah Farouk at the end of the movie. <laughs> My favorite part of the movie, by the way. Yes. So like about 10 minutes before that, Don comes in and goes, oh, you won't believe this. I just I just heard uh, the Sheik just, I just heard the Sheik go ballistic on uh, Ox Baker. I mean, I never heard him. I've never seen him like that. I've never, you know, Ox Baker had his head in his hand and was, you know, grimacing and just, you know, so I don't know what went down beforehand. <laughs> But something went on between the Sheik and Ox Baker that that night, and the Sheik wasn't having any of it, and just really got on Ox Baker's case, and we couldn't really see it. We could just hear the muffle of the, you know, the shouting going on. But everything was fine after that. I mean, it was all good. And then, you know, we shot that crazy the the uh, the interview with uh, with Terry and uh, Ox with Terry and uh, Cheech uh, with. Uh, Preachman yeah. and, and yeah. Farouk. Yeah. Bernie yeah. Roth. So, yeah. So right before that, it was, uh, it was a little chaotic. So, you know, it was just, and they were so spontaneous when we did that. We had no idea they were going to go uh, in that direction. We just thought it'd be another promo. And the more they got into it, the more they started working off each other. <laughs> and unfortunately, unfortunately we had the camera rolling even after they finished their interview and they literally were on the floor rolling with laughter. It just it's the first time I've seen really break character and just you know they were just beside themselves and we actually shot it but the film got lost that got you know who knows where that went so I show as much as I of it as I can in the movie and I do the soundtrack and I may integrate that into it if it's possible but yeah that was uh that was kind of funny they were you know they were all good friends right. uh Cheechman and Abdullah and she you know they were they were all buddies so it was always fun to see them together and they couldn't have been nicer with us. And and that scene uh, that, you know, what I'm talking about for people who have seen the movie, you know, towards the end of the movie, there's just this explosive argument between uh, the sheiks, you know, uh, two managers, basically, Abdullah Farouk and Eddie Creechman. And it's it's amazing to behold. But was that um, was that done? for you guys for the movie or was it a promo they were doing that you just happened to be able to film well you know it was a promo we were doing that we just have there was promo they were doing that we just have to be able to film if what had happened was two matches before that creechman threw the towel in pissed the sheik off i wasn't you know that was he wasn't defeated so uh so then they were gonna have a rematch oh so that night it was a rematch Creechman was now going to it was now managing Ox Baker, and Abdullah Farouk was now in the Sheik's corner because uh, 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 Creechman betrayed right. the Sheik, you know, by throwing in the towel, and uh, Abdullah was there to you know to to uh, seek revenge. So uh, that's what led to that promo uh, for the match that night. That's and I amazing. Think the match is actually in the film. I'm pretty yes. sure it is. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. Yeah, because that was that was important too. Because that was um, there was a brief window there, and that match was part of it, where they actually turned the sheik. The sheik turned himself babyface. You know, he had been a bad guy since forever, 
And he spent about a year in there where of being a good guy, you know, because they were trying anything to turn their business around. And it was right at that Creechman throwing in the towel thing was like the catalyst for that. But, you know, but that's interesting, too, because at the time you guys were doing that, and I write about this in the book, too, the the company was kind of on the way down in, in that era, 77, 78. They were their, their best years were behind them and the crowds were starting to shrink. And I don't think I asked you this last time, but was there any kind of sense of that while you were doing this, that things were not doing that great? for the company, at least as, as much as they had been doing. I never got a sense of that at all. Hmm. Uh, and I, when we were at the matches, they were pretty full and, you know, when they, they would do, they, they would wrestle the, in uh, Toledo and they would wrestle, you know, the, in uh, uh, bruiser territory in Indianapolis. And we went to those matches and those were full. The uh, cage match with the Sheik and bruiser that we went to was packed. Uh, you know, it wasn't like the heyday when like the Sheik was taking on Bobo Brazil, right? You know, back to the rafters, right? It wasn't 12,000 people, yeah, yeah, it wasn't like that, but it was still pretty full and it was still a pretty good crowd. I can't, Be- no, there was, uh, I never, never ever had a feeling that, uh, you know, there wasn't, uh, an attendant, a big attendance there because they were pretty full, yeah, because the ironic thing is, you know, you you guys were not able, right, to finish the movie on schedule. And it, as you said, it kind of got put on the shelf. You guys went your separate ways. And by the time it really got put together, um, Big Time Wrestling was gone. And it had been gone for years even, not even just recently, but gone for like four or five years by that point. Well, you're right. And I wasn't, you know, by that time I had moved on. And uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't what it was like. Uh, but you know, it just shows you how much interest there was there that even without the, uh, TV show and the, uh, and Cobo hall, the, for live matches, there was still an audience for the movie. You know, there was, and I think, you know, there, there were some other wrestling films that came out around that time. Oh yeah. Like the wrestling movie and, uh, maybe one or two others. So body slam and, body slam. and then, yeah. you know, there was that whole metamorphosis that happened and suddenly, you know, they're WWE and all these, you know, big, well, you know, uh, yeah. what happened, you know, everybody, it was just totally reorganized and that was, that was the end of it. But uh, also you got to remember too, as we got later into the seven, later into the seventies, these wrestlers, they've been doing it since the fifties and they're, they were pretty, they're getting old. Yeah, no, they, they were. were. So that might've had something to do with it too. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of kind of new blood coming in and they were using yeah. a lot of the same people and the same feuds and the same matches. And that was probably part of the problem, too. But in a way, I mean, because of the home video market happening in the 80s, you guys had an a, an outlet that didn't exist before because you wouldn't have been able to. I mean, it, if you had finished it at the time you were making it, did you know what the distribution plan was going to be? Were they, were they trying to get it into theaters and that kind of thing? Or, or did you not even think that far ahead? At the time we thought, yeah, you know, we could get this, you know, like any independent film, you could get in the theaters. VHF, VHS was just coming up, but in order to get a deal on VHS, you'd want it to play in theaters first. That's right. where you're going to get your best deal. So uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, in back in the eighties, more markets emerged where you had a laser disc market VHS market uh, that definitely helped, you know, growth. Uh, and, you know, the wrestling was going through some big changes in the eighties. Yeah. And so, go on. No, I was going to say that, you know, that I think that, uh, you know, because it wasn't televised, there was still probably a lot of interest in, in wanting to see wrestling and not being able to see it because it wasn't air, airing anymore. Uh, so that I think also helped. Yeah. And, you know, for for people my age and of my generation, you know, I I was of that generation that we kind of grew up with that with that uh, WWF explosion that happened in the mid 80s with Hulk Hogan and WrestleMania and everything else. And, um, you know, you'd go to the video store. My dad would take me. And all of a sudden there's a million wrestling tapes coming out. You know, there's all these videos. And um, I like to hurt people was. 
it's one of those iconic box covers from that time. You know, people talk about the horror movie box covers that would get burned into your brain when you when you went to the video store. Well, for me, it was the, those wrestling tape covers. It was the horror movies, too, but it was those wrestling tape covers. And I still remember that image of I guess it's Dusty Rhodes, right? Coming off the top rope. Or, yeah, I think it's Dusty Rhodes on the, on the cover. Yeah. And that kind of that kind of, you know, brightly colored treatment. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a great cover. And, you know, it just made you want to watch it, even if people like me, you know, that I didn't know at the time I was, I was 10, 11 years old. I didn't know wrestling before Hulk Hogan. I mean, at that time, and it still made me want to watch it. And that was one of the things that got me interested in. Oh, my God, there was this whole era where there was all these all this different wrestling all over the country. I. I honestly didn't know. And I wanted to learn more about that. It was great. Well, that's very interesting. That, that's uh, good to hear that our film was able to, you know, motivate and capture your attention enough to, you know, seek to you follow it through and you know, seek more. And now you've got now, um, you know, cause I, w- I want to talk about the, the stuff that's coming too, or, or that's even, existing now is now we've got the soundtrack because one of the things that I think was always a little bit frustrating about the movie was that there was no way because the, some of the songs a didn't make it to the movie as we know and some of the songs you people are you know enjoyed from the movie but there's no way to listen to it without watching the movie you know there was no kind of soundtrack availability not even YouTube or anything like that and so th- this see this is actually a a, a big deal i mean for people that are fans of the movie for sure yeah if you're a fan of the movie uh the music the the cd is great i mean not only they have the soundtrack but they have the acoustic versions that bob does it's fantastic i love the little the thing he did with heather feather the little ballad with her i think it it just sounds great i've listened to the cd a lot (laughs) i'm a big fan so and there's things on there that are, you know, connected to Detroit wrestling, but not even necessarily from the movie. Like, you know, people who may remember it, it was famous slash notorious, but the Ballad of Bobo Brazil was one of those Bob Finnegan tracks from back in the day when they were trying to branch out into, you know, recorded music. Yes, that was a big deal that they did. You know, Ed, uh, the Sheik's son Ed, Eddie, want, really wanted to be a, a you know recording artist, right? And just you know that was all, even back then he was still talking about it. So it was interesting that at least he, I'm glad that he had a chance to do that later in life. Uh, but yeah, that was always something. And Finnegan was always into the music part of it, and so was Don. So it didn't surprise me that the music was was what it was that they were going to make a big deal about it and, and really do something and just not find some generic off the shelf music. Uh, yeah, Finnegan was a musician and they had, had, you know, formed a little group of people that, uh, I thought did a spectacular job. Yeah. And he had the band, right. That he fronted and they kind of did a bunch of the tracks on there. Not the title track though. That wasn't the, I like to hurt people was, was separate, wasn't it? And it came along later. I think, didn't it? Wasn't it recorded? Maybe I have that mixed up. I thought it was. You know, I'm not the one to ask about that because I wasn't around for any of the recording. But yeah. from what I, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm really not sure. When I look at the credits, they're credited as uh, producing the music. So I'm not, I'm just not sure about that. Because I know, like you said, they, they added some footage later on, you know, because obviously the shooting is like 77, 78. Yeah. And then the video comes out in 85. And so leading up to that, they had recorded some new stuff, right? Like that Stop the Chic stuff was yeah. later. So you weren't you weren't involved with that stuff, right? Yeah. You know what? Okay, so one of the things that I discovered is, as I was looking for versions of the film, I discovered that they recut the movie in the, in the probably around 1980. And at that time, they put in a whole different soundtrack and that's when they use footage that I'm using in the behind the scenes because I've never seen it anywhere else. And those were originally the outtakes that they cut in. That was never, I never thought they would be in the movie. So that gave me some extra footage that I could use in the making of. But uh, at the time uh, in the eighties, when they were doing the music, 
I, I think what it was is they, they recut the film and they were going out and trying to sell it as an independent film way before New World. So they had a new music track cut in and did a version that was, I'm sorry, they did a version that wasn't as long as the New World version. It was short by about 10 minutes and then it was all new music. And I think that's what it was done for. I think it was done for the uh, this version that was cut in back in the 80s. Okay. So, so, and that's interesting too, because that's interesting too, because there's like, there's kind of multiple versions that were floating around there that, that have, you know, different, different soundtracks to them. But um, when, when it was actually released, um, did, did you get, did you guys get any sense of how it was doing at the time? If it was, cause I mean, you know, anecdotally it was one of those popular wrestling videos at the time i remember people even tape trading it but i mean was it something that that found an audience or did it become kind of like a cult classic as the years went by well that's a good question i think it actually became more of a cult classic as years went by people started discovering it because there wasn't a, you know there was a lot of like you said wwe there was a lot of that the new generation of wrestlers that came up there wasn't right. a lot with the old generation. And that's what we had. You know, we had the you know, early Dusty Rhodes matches. Uh, you know, all the wrestlers, you know, uh, the Funks, you know, early on. The wrestlers, wrestler and Andre the Giant. People that kind of ex- extended their careers with, you know, w- with the, uh, the, the wrestling franchise in the 80s. But the, uh, I think there was an, a little bit of an audience for that. Because right around the same time they released that, there was another movie that Don uh, also uh, was part of called Hell Comes to Frogtown. Of course. That, that started Rodney Piper. Yeah, Roddy Piper, right. So I think that also helped promoted the, promote the wrestling movie. And I really think it was just over time, people discovering the movie more and more. People wanted to see what old school wrestling was like. People had an interest. They heard about these wrestlers. They might have saw Andre the Giant on W, uh, you know, on one, of the 80s, sure. on one of the wrestling shows and they want to see what he was like earlier in his career. Well, certainly, you know, in 85, even though the, the Sheik had really kind of gone underground by that point, but but Dusty Rhodes and Andre the Giant were still in highly visible, if it, it, probably even more visible than they had been at the time that you guys shot it. They were, you know, among the, the top stars in the business, even in 1985, so that even that alone could have helped to 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 generate interest you know oh i think you're right i think you're absolutely right about that and the you know you mentioned the funks too and i have to say that that's another of my favorite parts of the movie the scene where they are waiting to use the telephone booth the public phone and they they and i don't know and i actually since i have you here i could ask you i don't know if you would know or remember but there's a girl who's on the phone. If you know the scene I'm talking about, it's like a young girl and Terry and Dory, they have to call. I don't know. They're, you know, they're outraged over the chic for some reason, and they got to make a phone call. And Terry kind of intimidates this poor girl until she runs away. And I've always wondered if that was planned or if they, you know, or if that was just some random girl on the phone, because it looked so real. Oh, that was real. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what happened, you know, uh, after the matches, the most of the wrestlers, you know, they stayed at the Pontchartrain Hotel. That's where that was the watering hole. Hmm. After the matches, we'd go over there. And, of course, we did. And there's the funks. And what you don't see in that scene, which you do see in the making of, is the scene before that of them coming up the elevator. And let's just say they had, they, they did kick a few back. And sure. Jerry starts yelling stuff out. Well, you're just gonna have to see it in the movie, but we couldn't put it in the film, <laughs> anyways. Yeah, that was re- that was all real, all spontaneous, all real, all on the fly as we as we're as we're doing it, just making it up. It was pretty funny, and and she yeah, that was all that was not you know that was her reaction. There was no setup before that. That's great. Funny. It's even funnier when you see this. I have that scene in the making of, and I have the scene before it. When you add them together. It takes it to another level. <laughs> <laughs> this is great because I'm glad that you're you're putting the work in to get this done because, I mean, for people like me that have seen this movie 
you know, so many times it's, it's like, you know what it is? I, I'm just thinking of this right now, but it's like the wrestling version of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, a mo- movie like this. <laughs> it, it, it totally is. It, it's like this kind of underground, you know, midnight matinee movie where people get obsessed with it and you can recite lines and things and, you know, weird bits. And I think between between the Dusty Rhodes promo and the Andre the Giant thing in the in the I think he's in a Jeep right in the Jeep. And um, the Funks harassing that poor girl, the Creechman and Farouk argument. I mean, there's so many priceless and things. The, and the end of the movie. Right. The, oh, you mean when they're in the limo together? Yeah. Yeah, that, that is wild because they're talking about, they're promoting some match or something, right? Don't, I think they mentioned Muhammad Ali. Yeah, they're promoting a match. They're, they're going to have a match on top of the Renaissance right. Center. <laughs> Which never happened, I don't think. No, but no, I mean, and you know, when we did that shot, when we did that scene, I'm trying to remember what led up to it. But we were we were hanging out with them, and we were on the limo, and we just went for it. I think there wasn't a lot of this. We didn't know what they were going to say. We knew we were going to drive. We were going to drive down, uh, drive down Michigan Avenue, and you know, have the rent set in the background. And, and uh, we just let them go at it. And we actually did a couple takes of that because it was so good the first time they did it. It was like, wait a minute, I want it, we can do this better. <laughs> about three times. And every time it got better and better. You know, the, so it became, you know, this big event. Now it's, you know, Muhammad Ali and this and that. <laughs> Sounded great. And, and it was the perfect ending for the movie. We didn't really know how to end it. Till we right. Got that scene. So did you, did, was that planned as the ending all along? No, it was never planned at the ending as the ending of the movie until we shot it. <laughs> and we saw like, oh, this will work well at the end. You know, yeah. so that's how we ended the movie. But you know, again, we didn't know we were even gonna have that scene because it was just all, you know, we just all set it up and we just okay, go. You know, uh Abdullah Farouk and and the Sheik just went at it. He just you know, Abdullah Farouk made it all up as he went along. Well, he and was the master. Movie. I mean, he was yeah, the master absolutely. of that. I really do think yeah. that while well, the Sheik never really had to say anything, but no, but he knew how to work off him. If you, right. if you watch that, he's always oh too. Right. <laughs> you know, he's got, he, he you know breaks in with his little little comments. Right. So, and he's and he's nodding, you know, he's like yeah, he's agreeing exactly. with 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 Farouk, even though he won't say anything. He's just yeah. like uh, uh, like he yeah. clearly like I, I understand and I agree. He's he's just in his own way, he's saying that. But like I always tell people when you're talking about, you know, the greatest wrestling managers of all time, I mean, there's different ingredients, but in terms of talking and just being able to go and go off, I mean, I think Ernie Roth, Abdullah Farouk, you know, the grand wizard, he was the best one in that category, just a, just a genius. But, you know, what I was saying before, when I mentioned the Rocky horror thing and how the, the following of this movie, it's just such a cool thing that would be unthinkable, you know, I mean, like for, for, for a lot of cult movies like this that are from a significant amount of time ago to have something like this, you know, this kind of making of, and this behind the scenes project you're working on to have it become available uh, is just a, a, a gift. I mean, to, to be able to, to see all this other stuff. I mean, I'm looking forward to it like that. You never got to see, like you said, when the camera stopped rolling or, you know, or when the, when the scene was cut and, and, and all that kind of thing, it, it, it adds a whole other dimension to something that maybe people are so familiar with that they never even considered that there was more to it. I think you're absolutely right. It's, I'm really enjoying working on it. Cause I get to hang out with these guys again get to hang out with the, you know, the wrestlers back from back then. And it, it's been fun just finding a way to put it all together and to tell the story of how we did it. And uh, I think, yeah, I think that uh, if you're a fan of the movie, this will, this is a, like a must have. It's like the, the, uh, the, you know, it is a making of really shows you what, what went into putting the, the movie together. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of little things in there that you wouldn't think about. Uh, he shows, you know, we talk about the editing process and some of the other situations we ran into. And anyways, yeah, I, I've been, uh, I'm hoping to have it done this year. Uh, I, I was waylaid for about three or four months, but because of another, another issue, but 
and I'm, I'm literally jumping back into it before, uh, before we started the podcast, I was just doing a little editing and managed to uh, cut together a little sequence uh, with, with uh, the funks that I think is going to be fun. Um, oh, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I just thought actually the funks are still around. They are, they are two people yeah, that are still around. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I should have. And, and Abdullah the butcher, no, he's still around too. Right. Okay. Yes. Cause he's Abdullah's in there. Um, but yeah, yeah, in fact, I, I just, uh, I also interviewed Terry for, for the chic book. So we've, we've actually been speaking a lot lately because I, I just, when the book came out, I sent him a copy and we were talking a bit and, you know, he loves to talk about the chic. How's he doing? Um, you know, he's kind of under his health. I heard yeah. That. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, he's not that old. He's really not. I mean, he's in yeah. his late seventies in the grand scheme of things. That's not, that's not terribly old or anything, but I think, especially nowadays, but you know, um, I, I think he has maybe some, some memory issues and things that are happening. And as people have said that, that, you know, his family is looking after him and, and, you know, he's, he's being well cared for, for sure. I'm glad to hear that. But, you know, he's, uh, he's not as sharp as, as he, he, he was, that's for sure. But, uh, but he's still no, but he's still funny as hell and just a warm, incredible guy. I mean, he just loves to talk about those days. You know, he when I, I called him to let him know I was going to be sending him a copy of the book and we talked and talked and talked. And then later that day, he called me back because he had more stories that he didn't get a chance to tell me earlier that he had remembered and it's just such a pleasure to hear. I mean, he loves to talk about the chic. He just, you know, cause it's funny to me. I, I think about the relationship because again, in, in doing the book, um, I, I'm covering the Sheik's whole career, you know, not just Detroit. I read that. <laughs> yeah. W- one of the first places that he really became a star was down in Texas working for Terry's dad, Dory Funk senior. And so like, when the Sheik and Terry first met, the Sheik was in his prime as a wrestler and Terry was in college playing football. So, I mean, you know, there's like a there's like a 15 to 20 year age difference between the two of them. So, I mean, he was somebody that Terry actually, you know, looked up to even and and uh, as his father's peer, you know, so he he loves to talk about that stuff. Yeah, well, that's great. That's great. He's Not great. And was there, yeah, I wanted to ask you, was there, because you were talking about, um, you know, we, we were talking about the the gap of time between the making and the release. Now, I, so I was curious, um, you know, what exactly led to, what was the moment where you guys knew that, okay, well, I guess we're not going to finish this movie or, or that's what it looked like. And was there a sense of disappointment from the Sheik and the other wrestlers of, well, what's going to happen with this movie? You know, that's a very good question. I never, th- I never thought that the film uh, was never going to be finished. I always thought the film would p- get finished and be made, even though I wasn't around for it, because I knew that Don would find a way to get it done. Um, so that didn't surprise me. Uh, for me, I reached a point in my career that uh, working on this movie was no, was, you know, I, I finished, I did everything I could do. I was, I already, I had my own career going and that's where I was putting my time, not really thinking about the movie. And my thoughts on there is like, you know, if Don can make something of it and is able to, you know, do something with it, great. God bless him. You know, uh, I wanted to see him uh, be successful. So uh, I was glad that, you know, I, I, I just kind of let it go and left it in his hands and knowing that something would become of it. Uh, just, just that Don and, and Bob were not going to let it go, uh, that they'd put, we had put too much energy into it, and that there was something there, and it was worth seeing, and that they, I knew that they wouldn't give up on it. So even though I wasn't talk, I wasn't communicating with them that much, uh, I was still, you know, I would still talk to Don every once in a while. I would still talk about the movie, but I just wanted, you know, I just let them run with it, basically. Right. And so was Bob still involved even 
in the eighties, you know, when big time wrestling was done and he, he wasn't even working for the Sheik anymore by that point. So, and, but he was still involved with the movie. Yes. He was still involved in the movie and him and Don went on to do a couple of other projects. They were involved. <coughs> they were involved in some other things. They were, you know, Bob is, was quite the hustler. So when things slowed down, I think they were working for a church group that had a big following in Michigan. Uh, I don't know much about it, but I know that's seemed to be what they, what uh, Finnegan transitioned into. Oh, that's interesting. Really didn't have much communication with Bob. Mostly it was all my communication was with Don and really with Don, we're, I wasn't really talking to him about the wrestling movie. I was talking to him about other projects that we were talking about. You know, for me, it was uh, just always on the back burner. Yeah, and I had heard that Bob Finnegan wound up in Canada, right? He was living in Canada for a while? or Because I know when he passed away, it, it, it was mentioned that he had been living in Canada. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. I thought he was living in Australia. Oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe it's that. Maybe I'm mixing That's- it up. Australia. That's what I had heard. I heard that he was living in Australia for a couple of years. And and that. interesting that I mean, you mentioned the tele, you know, the 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 church thing that he was involved in. I don't know if, you know, maybe there's some similarities with the wrestling business that he found appealing. Who knows? But but um, I think um, he's. It's interesting that he he moved away from wrestling and he never really had any that I'm aware of any other involvement in the business after that. You know, I, he still kept a relationship with the uh, Sheik and his family. Uh, I think he was, he wasn't like proactive, but he was still, I think he was still just involved uh, on a more personal level with these people, not mm-hmm. so much a business level. Uh, I, knew, I remember talking to uh, Ed's brother. Tommy. Uh, yeah, he was, he was telling me that Finnegan would call him every year, wish him a happy birthday, things like that. And, I thought that was pretty cool. And yeah. So it sounded like, you know, they still kind of, still kind of stayed in touch, but like you said, when the rest when wrestling was no longer, you know, as popular as it was, uh, some of, there were some other areas out there that were growing. And I think he was able to latch on to that and use his skills as a promoter to help the uh, promote the church or whatever that organization was. And did you have contact in later years with um, any of the Farhat family members, Joyce or or the kids? I talked to Ed's brother about maybe two, three years ago. We had a great conversation. I was just stunned when he passed because I was hoping yeah. to talk to him some more. Uh, and we talked about all kinds of different things and talked about, I think I'd mentioned to you about, you know, taking some of the footage they had on two inch and transferring that so other people could so it could be shared with other people and at that time i uh i turned them on to a source that was that could have done it if they had the money but you know unfortunately they didn't they didn't i would love to find out where that footage is yeah i would too and and i know we were talking about this on the phone but you know that's one of the big mysteries and it's mentioned in the book of what happened to the big time wrestling footage there's been tiny amounts of it that, you know, wound up on YouTube and other places and, and, you know, kind of like bargain basement video collections in the eighties and nineties. Those were tapes that Sheik had personally sold. He sold it to a company called PNM. I think it was called PNM media, which was run by a former um, wrestling promoter, uh, Pedro Martinez and his son. And, but, but other than that, the lion's share of the footage never resurfaced. And I know I heard Eddie, Eddie Jr. in an interview that he gave a few years back, he mentioned that they had the tapes. And like I said, they just didn't have the money to invest in converting them. So yeah, who knows if, if they're still in the family or, you know, if, if he was, um, you know, maybe stretching the truth a little bit, we don't know. We'll never know now. I mean, maybe we'll know one day, who knows, but uh, yeah. it remains a mystery. <laughs> That's unfortunate. It's, you know, I'm sure there's just gold in there. So. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, they were, you know, they were in operation for 15, 16 years at, just on, under their own auspices of running big time wrestling. And who knows if they even had footage earlier than that, because Sheik, when he bought the company, 
you know, I, I would imagine if there was any footage that existed, he, he bought that as part of the deal. You know, you would think that there would be something out there. Um, and it certainly would be, I mean, there's a market, especially nowadays for that kind of stuff. There's, there's platforms and there's streaming services and things yeah. that are looking for that kind of thing. And, you know, even, I mean, the WWE is known to buy these kind of tape libraries, even though they're not as much in the market for it anymore these days as they used to be. Um, there would definitely be a lot of interested parties <laughs> if this footage ever resurfaced for sure. Yeah. Well, I hope but, we can find it someday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and just one other thing, because I wanted to ask about, um, uh, how people can get the the soundtrack and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, you mentioned Tommy and, you know, we were all really shocked when not only Tommy, but Eddie, they both passed within a few months of each other. I think it was within six months of each other. And, you know, I had been in the process. I had been speaking with both of them with Eddie as kind of the spokesman as the older brother um, to help with the book. And it, it never came to pass for a variety of reasons. I think a big part of it was, the health issues that they were both dealing with actually. And, but, but Tommy at the time that you were making the movie would have been a pretty little kid. Right. I don't think he was maybe like a teenager. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He would have had to have been a teenager. I, you know, I never, I really don't remember seeing him uh, when we were over at the Sheik's house. I'm sure mm. he was around, but I never kind of remember him being anywhere. Around. Yeah. Around. Well, there was a big, there was a big uh, age difference between the two of them um, at they're about 12, 13 yeah. years apart. They were. Yeah. Interesting. So the, so let's talk about the, the soundtrack for people that want to find it. And also if for people that want to find out more and, and kind of keep track of the, the making of project Two, where could they go? What can they do? The best uh, the best way to find information is to go to the I Like to Hurt People Facebook page. Uh, I'm Once I have uh, the uh, making up together, I'm going to have a website up. Uh, that's slowly coming together. Uh, but the best, uh, the best place to find information will be on my Facebook page. And in, to uh, if people interested in purchasing the CD soundtrack, they can find it on eBay. It's basically where I would where I sell it. Um, I don't deal with Amazon or uh, a streaming service. I find it just easier to do it on eBay. Mm -hmm. uh, if somebody would be interested in a digital version, then they could message me on the Facebook page and I could uh, send them, I could set that up so they could get a down, digital download. But right now uh, I sell it as a CD where you not only get the CD, you get the artwork and the info that's on the, on the cover, on the packaging. Uh, and as yeah, that's really the, the only place. Same with the, the uh, uh, DVD. You sell it on eBay and I'm selling them both as a combo uh, for a pretty reasonable price. So it's like, like $34.99 free shipping. You can get both. Uh, right. And I do, you know, we, we do sales. You know, there is still interest out there, uh, which I, I'm always flattered and good to see. Yeah, it's it's out there. I mean, I could tell you even with the book, I mean, I, I was concerned that I thought it would be kind of like this niche little thing, you know, a book about a wrestler who who peaked 50 years ago. But there's interest out there. I mean, there's people there, there's still people that remember. And even for people that don't remember, there's people that are interested in learning and in finding out about this this amazing time in wrestling history that they missed. So, I mean, I have it. I, I'm lucky to have the soundtrack and thank you for, for sending it my way. And I could say that it is a joy. It's a pleasure, especially for people that are fans of this stuff. You don't want to miss it. And um, thank you, Brian, for, for talking. And even thank you for talking to me way back when, when I was working on the book, very, very helpful, uh, informative stuff. And this has been a great conversation too. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, thanks for having me on. And, you know, I, I'm, I love the movie. <laughs> I've seen it a zillion times and I, I still love watching it. And I'm, I'm glad there are still fans out there that are interested and that are supporting it. So, yeah, this is all good. I look forward to reading your book. Thank you. Oh, and thank you again for letting me use the music because people tell me how much they they, you know, it's like an, it gets stuck in their head that I like to hurt people theme. 
that I used for the for the theme of the podcast. And some people have told me that they find themselves just singing it absentmindedly during the day, like when they're walking around, which I also do, too, to the point where my now my five year old son is singing it, which, you know, (laughs) (laughs) his his mom's not thrilled about that, but that's okay. No, I'm I'm glad you're able that you're using it. Uh, the more people that hear it and connect to it, uh, the better. You know, I, I'm I'm, uh, yeah. No, I'm very happy that you're able to promote you know the music and uh, use it as your opening. No, that's great. Thank you so much. Thanks, for, thanks again for having me. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Brian Greenberg co-producer of I Like to Hurt People. And I encourage everybody, as we mentioned in the conversation, to seek him out uh, on the uh, Facebook page for I Like to Hurt People and the other locations that he mentioned. If you want to find out more about the soundtrack to the movie and about the the um, kind of making of sequel that he has in the works, I encourage you to follow him and you can find out plenty about that fascinating project. Um, In the meantime, I encourage you to keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle because the guests just keep on coming. And I'm proud to announce that next week's guest will be the editor-in-chief of Pro Wrestling Illustrated Magazine, Mr. Kevin McIlvaney. Uh, Kevin, of course, who took over for the legendary Stu Sachs. Uh, a little over a year ago, maybe about a year and a half ago now. And so we had a great conversation about just the magazines and being fans back in the day and all that great stuff. And you guys are going to love it. That's coming up next week. Also, as I've mentioned, on the way in future weeks, another Jim Crockett Promotions legend. Of course, we recently had Manny Fernandez coming up soon in the weeks to come. The Perfect 10 Baby Doll coming to Shut Up and Wrestle. And I'm proud to mention now for the first time another guest that I'm working out having on the show. And if you are a listener of the 605 Super Podcast, then you know this man very well. He is the uh, wrestling photographer extraordinaire, wrestling humorist, and the greatest magnificent Morocco impression in the business. I'm talking about the great Howard Baum. Howard Baum coming to Shut Up and Wrestle in the weeks to come. Of course, where do you find this podcast? Well, wherever you find great podcasts is where you find it. We have our website, suawpod.com. You can also find it on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, and anywhere else, really, where podcasts can be found. Um, You'll be able to find it. Also, as I've mentioned, the Facebook group, Please join the Facebook group. We are growing every week. Shut up and wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Look that up on Facebook and you will be able to join the conversation, as people like to say. Um, What else? Well, I mentioned my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik, which you can order from me. You can order signed copies if you email me at brianrsolomon at yahoo.com or go to my Twitter at Brian R. Solomon. Um, Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine issues you can purchase at getpwi.com and issues of Inside the Ropes magazine, where I am a regular contributor, you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. And as for finding me, as I've mentioned, there's Twitter. Uh, Avoid the Instagram for now, as we've said And if you go to Facebook, if you want to follow my author page on there on Facebook, uh, just look up Brian Solomon Writer, and that will be my author webpage. And on the social media platforms, you will also find links to my uh, actual author website. And there you have it. So as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you. That wherever you go, there you are. So long, wrestling fans.